Hello and welcome to the eighth episode of Wildfire Matters, the podcast that covers all aspects of wildland fire management for the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM. We talk with people who help manage and protect our public lands, many dedicating their lives to the profession. Today, Jennifer and I are talking with Courtney Wyatt, a wildland firefighter and currently a fuel specialist working for the Boise District BLM. Welcome, Courtney. Thank you. Welcome, Courtney. We're lucky to be talking to Courtney today, for one. We're starting to pick up in fire activity, Mm -hmm. so we're able to get her here at least. Mm -hmm. Um, But she not only has background in wildland fire management um, as a wildland firefighter, but has also fuels management. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about fuels management? I mean, just what is fuels first? Fuels is part of the fire program, but basically we use the term fuels to indicate anything out there on our public lands that can catch on fire and burn. So trees, grass, mostly vegetation. And so what we do in the fuels program is um, do hazardous fuels reduction or manipulate the fuels that are out there to try to help wildland firefighters and protect communities. Great. So how did you get started as a wildland firefighter? Um, I actually got started as a botanist with the Forest Service in um, on the Tahoe National Forest, which is where I grew up. And um, It was only like three months of seasonal work and they were about to lay me off and they said, oh, hey, there's a young lady leaving the fire engine to go back to school and do you want to keep working? And I said, sure. And I got on the fire engine and went on a few fires and I didn't really turn back (laughs) after that. And so, um, you know, it took me around from the Tahoe National Forest to the San Juan National Forest in southwest Colorado and then to the Boise National Forest here and then Boise BLM. And then in 2010, I had my son, my husband is a wildland firefighter as well. And so one of us had to stay home. And so I kind of shifted gears and I'd always been interested in fuels. Like I had spent my time in the fall and winters working on fuels project during the off season, knowing that I would, you know, kind of wanted to go that direction. But um, yeah, then in uh, 2012, I got a job with the fuels program in the Boise district and, um, the longest I've stayed in any one place because I love what I'm doing. It's been a great experience blending my fire experience of 11 years of engines, the hotshot crews, and hell attack with with my degree in biology. And yeah, I really love what I'm doing right now. That's awesome. And it's great to be able to be in fuels and be able to blend that too, that Mm -hmm. they worked so well together. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we've had a lot of um, speakers that have had that transition of mm-hmm. fire and then coming over into stuff. Jolie kind of had a different path, too, and kind of came into fuels. That seems like everyone, up. though, seems to uh, say they love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once they get, like, in, they're hooked. So yeah. Yeah. as a botanist, you came in and you're hooked. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And actually, the botany probably works well with your fuels management. It too, does, well. although my plant identification identification skills have kind of gone down in the last 22 (laughs) years, but I'm still, you got the grasses down. I got the main ones. Yeah. (laughs) The ones that are needed. Yeah. So, um, so how go back to firefighting, how hard was it to be, um, you said you did some time on engines, but then transitioned to a hotshot crew. How hard was that? Yeah, that actually, I'm one of those that kind of lucked out in the early 2000s with the national fire plan that came about in the 90s and they were kind of expanding fire at the time in the early 2000s and so they were putting in a new crew in Durango, Colorado and um, so I got hired as a senior firefighter that first year of that crew and um, 
it was just a wonderful opportunity to be a part of a new crew and build it. And we got our type one certification by the end of that season. Um, we had some great people on that crew and it was, um, it was pretty amazing thing to be a part of. And so I kind of lucked out because I also got my career seasonal that same year. And it's kind of unheard of today that you get a career seasonal on a hotshot crew without previous hotshot experience. Um, and all I had done prior was like a couple fill-ins with uh, the Tahoe hotshots before that. So, yeah. But that requires you to be very physically fit too. Yes, it does require you to be fit. And, um, yeah. So, you know, whether you're on a hotshot crew or an engine crew or hell attack, yeah, there is a physical component to this job, but it's also really mentally demanding as well to be on a fire suppression crew, no matter what type of resource it is. Yeah. Yeah, and I know hotshot crews, especially, I can see why you took time off after that, Mm -hmm. because they're out all the time, (laughs) seems like all year long. Yeah, six of my 11 years that I was still in primary fire um, were on hotshot crews, and yeah, you're gone all summer long from like May until October. How is that different from like being on an engine, or did you do some hell attack time as well? I did do hell attack. Both of the hell attack crews I was on were national ships, and so... They didn't really stay local, one in Durango and one here in Boise. And so we kind of support the national effort. And so we got to travel all around the Western United States during fire season with both of those two different crews. So it was still a lot of time on the road, but not quite as physically demanding as the hotshot crew. There's there's still a little bit of downtime because they use helicopters for either large fire support or initial attack. And um, so there is kind of a little bit of downtime sometimes on hell attack. Can you kind of explain the difference between like the specific work you would do as a hotshot as opposed to like a hell attack crew member? Um, Hotshots are also a national resource. So they go where the priority is, where the large fires are. They they rarely um, do initial attack. Um, And so once they get to a fire, it's already going. Sometimes there's an incident management team in place, but... um, They usually are given the toughest piece of ground, the toughest task out there on the fire, and um, they hike to the furthest reaches of the (laughs) fire in steep terrain, rocky. Um, They really do face the most risk, and um, and a lot of times, just they're so far out there too. They just have to be kind of self-sufficient and. Um, you know, they'll get some support from the fire if, if they can't make it back into the, um, the fire camp. Um, they'll spike out and they'll get food and water and stuff. But, yeah, it's, um, it's pretty physically and mentally demanding, like I said, because um, you're just out sleeping on the ground every single night, getting dirty. They have showers in camp, but a lot of times you work a 16-hour day and you're just too tired to come back into camp and shower. So <laughs> there are a few times I went 14 days without showers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we've been experienced yeah. or have experience with that a few too. times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how was um, the hotshot crew, like you said, 16-hour days from like May to October, how was that crew cohesion like built that during that time? I mean, you're together all the time. Yeah. Um, it just happens through you know overcoming adversity together right like that's how groups are formed together and um almost every single year on the crew you'd have one or two people that you could see that were either struggling and some of them wouldn't make it through the season or 
you know, they'd finish the season, but then they wouldn't come back the next year. And, um, and that just happens. The job isn't for everybody because you're away from home. You're sleeping on the ground. A lot of times you're not even in cell service, which, you know, we're all tied to our phones these days and cell coverage is getting better, but, um, it's just, it's just taxing and exhausting. And, um, the people who really want to be there, they, they come together and they form that cohesion through overcoming really challenging, uh, assignments on some of these large fires and getting around it and stopping it like that's a huge reward after you all go through that together as a team yeah that's really the term roughing it yeah, mm-hmm. that's for it. sure mm-hmm. and how about hell attack your experience on hell attack yeah it was that was enjoyable too um also always working with quality people and same thing you'll you'll have challenges on hell attack as well and um i was fortunate enough both crews that i worked for you know it was a medium helicopter and they're used a lot on large fire support but our our supervisors that ran those programs were really good about getting us out on the fire and not just sitting at a hell base and so i was really lucky to have that in both instances of we would leave enough people to help do the helicopter support at the hell base, whether it was a crew shuttle or bucket work or whatever. But anybody else, if they wanted to get up on the fire, they could in either hike around or we would put together a small crew that would go scratch line or just man a hell spot or a dip site or something like that. Yeah, I was going to ask how that, um, to describe, you know, kind of what exactly you do as a hell attack person mm-hmm. versus hot shot. Like, like how is that different? Oh, as far as, far as the job itself, um, the work you do, I guess. The yeah. Physical work. Yeah. So you're really kind of tied to that helicopter and they use helicopters for crew shuttle or cargo shuttles or um, bucket work on large fires. And like I said, sometimes we would have initial attack assignments, but it was, it was kind of rare. Um, being a national resource, um, you know, usually just like hotshot crews, you're going to a large fire and an incident that's already been burning for, you know, several days or weeks sometimes. Um, so yeah, we're, we're just a helicopter crew member, you know, would help manifest a crew if it needed to be shuttled up there and you brief the crew members or whoever is needs to get up to a certain remote part of the fire that you can't, um, that you can't drive to and then if a crew is spiking out out there then you help get them supplies and then of course bucket work and that's just the pilot on board but it's our job to you know hook up the bucket and make sure when he takes off and lands that nothing's tangled and that it's working properly and yeah I remember spending a little time on a hell attack crew on a fire and that was I still think it's by far my favorite assignment I've had Mm -hmm. It's just so much going on and different at the hella base with the different helicopters and everything. Yes. Yeah. When you get on a large hella base where there's like three light helicopters and five to seven medium helicopters and then a couple heavies, it there's a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, you kind of talked about hot shots and then hell attack. Um, you said you did some time on engines. How does being on an engine, because that's kind of more of initial attack versus those other mm-hmm. ones maybe on the larger incidents. Can you give us a little bit insight on the um, being on an engine and, and initial attack? So the time I was on the engine was just my first two years in, vi- in fire. And it was on the Forest Service. And we had a few smaller initial attack fires. But um, compared to the BLM now, like... The fire behavior there on the forest on a new fire was just small and I I never went on a fire that was more than five acres when I was on the engines. But what I know of our firefighters here 
on the BLM program um, than when they initial attack a fire here in the Snake River Plain right here outside Boise is um, it's going right off the bat just because of the fuel type out here in the BLM and um, usually it's a wind-driven fire and so initial attack man the, our BLM engines have kind of perfected initial attack around here of mobile attack um, and and I personally can't speak that well to it because I was never on one of our BLM engines but I've seen them at work and it's pretty impressive that they they have a system where they just kind of anchor flank and pinch and they're going driving like four-wheel drive cross-country to get around the fire and of course in conjunction with dozers and stuff like that out here um running and gunning yes exactly exactly but so unfortunately it's hard for me to speak to that because my engine experience was forest service and we never had super active fires like that that i initial attacked but all three careers are, are, are a little different and exciting in their mm-hmm. own way. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. just kind of that little perspective as well. And I highly recommend if you are trying to get into wildland fire, if you're early in your career, try it all. Try repelling. Try smoke jumping if you want to. Like all of them offer something different and different skills. Um, you know, hotshot hot crews, yeah, they're really challenging. But, man, you will never learn as much about fire behavior in different fuel types and different firefighting tactics than you will on a hotshot crew. Like it, it's, it's just a phenomenal experience, and I highly recommend it for anybody. That's great advice. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be to be a hotshot or a smoke jumper these days, though, you do you do need to have some fire experience, right? Yeah, I it's understand. Pr- pretty just rare to get fire hired um, on a hotshot crew your very first year in fire. They want to see at least one year of fire experience prior. Yeah, get a little bit under your belt so you're not mm-hmm. just going out of mm-hmm. rush. Well, know what you're getting into, too. Another way to get your foot in the door is um, if you are working on an engine or hell attack, um, ask to detail with the, the closest hotshot crew in your agency because they are always looking for extra people to come along. Like, normally they're 20-people crews, but... Um, they'll take 22 if they can because they've got a seat in the buggy for that. And so um, they're always looking for extra bodies. And that is a phenomenal way to kind of test it out if you're interested and curious about it. And then, you know, get your foot in the door that way. Yeah, a ton of opportunity. Mm-hmm. I mean, countless. Mm-hmm. Right. And then and then transitioning to fuels. Yeah, <laughs> fuels. So uh, take us through a typical day. Like, what, what do you do in fuels? Um it depends on the time of year, but I do work year round. And that's kind of the difference between, you know, being on a fire crew versus in fuels. Um, a lot of the winter, I'm almost as busy um, just with planning and, you know, writing our contracts and our statement of works for some of the projects that we implement in the summer. We don't we don't have enough people to implement the types of projects that we are doing in in our program here just because of the scale and how many acres we have so we contract out a lot of the the conifer cutting trees and um fuel break implementation which is another one of my project areas and so in the winter time it's just a lot of planning and getting ready for the field season writing burn plans for you know we primarily do our prescribed fire either in the spring or the fall and so that's what the winter is like. So it's a little bit more office time in the winter time. Um, but during the spring and fall, like I said, we're out there doing prescribed fires, um, jackpot burning in the springtime or black lining for a broadcast burn that we would be implementing in the fall. 
Um, and then of course fall is kind of our broadcast burning time. And, and then we do some pile burning as well once there's snow on the ground in like December. Um, but then summertime is more, um, I'll come into the office some days, but a lot of times I'm out in the field five days a week, either doing project layout or administering contracts. Um, um, recently I've been helping with, um, setting up monitoring plots on this one particular project that, um, this is the first year that we're implementing on it. And so we had to get the pre, um, pre-treatment monitoring plots set up. So lot of time in the field just hiking around still getting to be outdoors and connected to our public lands which is you know why I landed in this career in the first place was like I just where I grew up you know was the Tahoe National Forest was my back door and that was um having that right there really kind of um created this passion for our public lands and helping out we appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you said a couple of things like jackpot burns. What are those? So jackpot burn. So here in the Boise district, we have a lot of juniper treatments out in the Owyhee mountains and juniper is encroaching into um, sagebrush ecosystems. And um, we want to try to um, cut back on that juniper encroachment. So we've been doing, um, juniper treatments for quite a while now in the Owyhees and some of the projects will do a broadcast burn if it's more dense juniper but some of the more spread out juniper is um, we don't want to leave the red needles sitting on the ground in case you know lightning or something comes through the Owyhees and there's a fire because that's really volatile fuels and so we will go out in the springtime when there's a lot of moisture in the ground and there's green grass to help prevent the fire from spreading and we'll just jackpot burn each one of those little juniper trees for like I don't know two to three hundred feet off the side of roads to really reduce the hazardous fuels that are right next to the road and so that time of year in the spring the sagebrush is really high fuel moisture content so it's not flammable the grasses are green and like I said the soils are still have a lot of moisture in them so you can just light the red needles of the juniper that was cut the previous year and literally walk away from it it's not going to spread anywhere and it's just reducing some of the hazard that we have put on the ground out there the previous year yeah and also um taking away that fuel so other grasses and things can grow because mm-hmm. i know a lot of people may not know about juniper and how it just sucks the moisture out of the ground mm-hmm. of everything around it yeah. and just take kind of takes over yeah yeah. Not allowing a lot a lot of stuff to grow in between it or underneath it. Yeah. 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 Okay. And and we want to preserve the, the sagebrush habitat um, because there's so many animals and wildlife that are dependent on that ecosystem, you know, all the way up and down the food chain, whether it's um, deer and elk, raptors, Paiute ground squirrel, you know, pygmy rabbits, you name it. Like there's all sorts of critters out there that rely on that ecosystem. And the more you have the juniper encroach into it, you know, eventually it starts to choke out the the sagebrush stands and the grass and stuff like that. And not to mention the sage grouse. Yes. Yes. Sage grouse. Yes. Sage grouse. Habitat. <laughs> we always have to mention the sage grouse. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you also mentioned um, the... Like black lining for prescribed fire. Explain how that works. 
So well, what that is? A, a lot of our or all of our broadcast burning is in juniper, and it's really hard to get juniper to burn naturally, because especially um, phase three juniper, which is kind of like the the latest stage of a juniper stand that it's been there long enough. It has completely outcompeted all of the understory of grass and sagebrush, and so there's really not a lot of fuel on the ground to carry a fire. And so what we do is go in there and pre-treat the juniper like 12 or 14 inch diameter and smaller, we will cut it and put it on the ground in those areas and let it cure out so it's got those red needles. So when we do a broadcast burn, it'll carry into some of the standing green trees still. But it's very, very volatile burning red needle juniper slash in the fall um, because it is dry and it puts off like 30 to 40 foot flame lanes. It's pretty awesome to see, but it's hard to contain. And so in the springtime, we'll go and do a black line buffer around that broadcast burn for, um, I don't know, anywhere from 100 to 200 feet off of our control lines, whether it's roads or a dozer line or a two track or something like that. And so we do that so that when we do come out in the fall, we have a little bit of a buffer where the fire behavior is going to be a little more manageable and those super volatile fuels adjacent to our control lines are taken care of and then we can burn the interior. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And you talked a little bit about fuel breaks too. I know we're working more on getting more fuel breaks out um, mm-hmm. to protect our communities but also help firefighters. Can yeah. you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, so first thing with fuel breaks that I want to say is that sometimes people um, think that they're just a standalone feature that is designed to stop a fire all by itself, and that's not what they're intended to be. They, they are areas adjacent to existing roadways where we manipulate the fuel structure so that when a fire does come there, it's going to change the fire behavior as it gets closer to the road and allow firefighters to have a chance to stop the fire. And so we do things like mowing the sagebrush. If you take, you know, three foot sagebrush stand that would normally put off 25, 30 foot flame lanes, right, adjacent to a road that firefighters might want to make a stand on, and we mow it down to six inches, when it hits that fuel break, the your fire behavior is going to change. The flame lengths go down to like one to three feet and it gives firefighters a better chance at stopping the fire. Sure. And yeah, it, it, it's in its name too. It's fuel break. Mm-hmm. So it's not like fuel stop. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. It's not called a fire stopper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's a tool that we're, that one of a couple of my projects and we're out there implementing these fuel breaks on existing road systems. Um, to create tools to help our firefighters. And in some areas, it's really making a difference. One of my projects is right out here in the Snake River Plain along Interstate 84 between Boise and um, Glens Ferry. And it goes from the interstate up to the, the foothills. And it's an area where we've had really high fire frequency. And, um, and so um, we've been implementing these fuel breaks. It's a combination of, of mowing some areas, but then other areas um, we've been disking for seedbed prep to plant uh, a, a plant that stays green longer into the fire season, and it also outcompetes with the cheatgrass. Um, and so once we get that plant established, it kind of breaks up the, the continuity of the cheatgrass fuel bed. Um, and so when a fire hits it, it might scorch one of these plants or it might jump from one plant to the other, but it also slows the fire down, 
allows firefighters to get in there and stop the fire. And so we have some areas out here in this project area um, along Interstate 84 where we've, we've had fires stopped in some of our fuel breaks. I know because I, well, investigating fires for the <laughs> Boise District for 26 years, yeah. a lot of fires on the interstate off of vehicles. Yes. And a lot of times people don't know, you know, they're driving down the road and dragging something or a wheel comes off. <laughs> but um, we found that with, it was mainly within like 8 to 10 feet of the pavement is where something will roll and stop and catch the vegetation on fire. And so creating those fuel breaks, knowing that too, what's starting fires, but creating those breaks or um, putting in Mm -hmm. um, plant material, sometimes controversial, the forage kosher, but it does work. I mean, if you're driving along the interstate, you can see the difference Mm -hmm. between the fuels right now, between what is dry and what is not. And you can see it like breaking up the continuity of the fuel along Mm -hmm. there. And so that's, it's good to see that. um, And it'll take a lot longer for it to cure out Mm -hmm. and then potentially burn. So, yeah. Yeah, along the interstate, another thing we the Boise BLM started doing was an agreement with um, Idaho Transportation Department, probably in the mid-2000s, was just giving them a grant um, to do fuels treatments within the right-of-way. Because even though it's BLM land, we don't exactly have authority to, to operate in there unless we get like a permit from ITD for that. And so we were just giving them money and said, hey, go mow all the brush down go spray the shoulder that first eight to 10 feet off the edge of the pavement where if a car overheats, he's going to pull right there next to the vegetation. And you're exactly right. Like if we can make that bare ground for the next eight feet off the edge of the cement, it has stopped a lot of fires from happening um, in that I-84 corridor um, in the last like 10 or 15 years. Yeah, I was going to say, <clears throat> fuel breaks are not just like you see out in the wildlands. It's it's actually both. It's like from the roadway to the wildlands, from the wildlands to the roadway. So mm-hmm. those fuel breaks are perfect both sides. So that's where we always talk about fire prevention and education because the roadway is just as important as if they're coming from the wildlands towards the roads. Yeah. And also around communities yep. and people will disc or um, dozer, take a dozer around their properties, which is a yep. good idea to do before fire season. Yes. Because discs have also been known to spark fires with yes. hitting rocks and things like that. So if you can do that kind of stuff before fire season, yeah. <laughs> before in your area, then yeah. it's very helpful. And it helps firefighters too. Yes, it does. Have you seen a lot of changes in um, just fire behavior and the environment since you started? I mean, we're, we're hearing a lot about climate change and its impact on fires. But how about just you personally, have you seen changes from when you started yeah and even when I started my career I remember you know my first few years on the hotshot crew I was only you know four or five years into my career talking to the old timers then on some of the the plume dominated fire behavior we were seeing in Colorado in 2002 they had a pretty record season that year Um, it seemed like that year almost every single fire we went to was plume dominated fire behavior. And some of the old timers were like, man, this, this doesn't, doesn't seem right. This isn't, you'd see this like maybe once or twice in your career and we're seeing it every single fire this summer. And I think that year in 2002, Colorado had a record for um, the most days of red flag warnings for single digit RHs or something that summer. I can't remember exactly, but um, I just remember hearing those stories and you, you know, when you're early in your career, you try to listen and glean what you can from, 
from some of the more experienced firefighters. And, you know, I haven't, I've mostly been, been doing, um, prescribed fire since 2012. Um, so I haven't been on as many large fires, but yeah, I just see the statistics of our fire seasons are getting longer into the spring and into the fall. And you see these larger, more catastrophic fires happening, you know, as a result of it's drier out here in the West and, it's getting hotter and it is curing our fuels out sooner in the season. They're not recovering in the winter time with, without the snowpack and the rainfall. And, um, and yeah, it just is, it's creating an kind of a scary scenario here in the West. Yeah. So fuels management, coming mm-hmm. back to fuels management is mm-hmm. going to be very important Yes. in the future, especially to um, ha- tackle some of these issues we're having. With yes fires um and that brings me to like measures to take to kind of mitigate these fires and in, mm-hmm. in the firefighting environment um what do you see as the future or what or what are you working on to do to help with that uh well the fuel breaks project that's here just outside of boise actually is um a mix of blm and private land out there there's still a lot of private ranches between here and glens ferry north of the interstate and so um, this particular project we've partnered with you know other agencies and some of the landowners um, to implement those fuel breaks on their private land and they've done a phenomenal job at that and we want to see more of it so that we can connect you know what we've done on the BLM with what they've done on private Um, we have some connection in one area of this particular project but um, there's more there's a lot more private out there and so I would like to, you know, keep working on that with the private landowners there. But of course, you know, the whole fire prevention program, I don't need to speak to that to you guys. (laughs) But, you know, if you live in the woods, have defensible space, you know, don't keep your firewood by your house and, you know, have a green lawn if you can or, um, you know, do what you can to kind of limb your trees and make your property fire safe. And then if you're recreating in the woods, be smart about it. Uh, don't burn your toilet paper and <laughs> put your fire out, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That I just think about, yeah, we've had a lot of different <laughs> changes. <laughs> yes. He's talked about burning toilet paper. And I've had my own experience with yeah. investigating a fire. Yeah. <laughs> dealing with that. Yeah. <laughs> kind of gives me nightmares, flashbacks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If the, the grass is yes. dry and brown around you, don't. Yeah. Don't burn it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, great advice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you heard her here first. <laughs> so what's your favorite part of firefighting and fuels work? Probably the people that I work with, both on crews and in my fuels program um, right now. Like, I've, I've been really fortunate to work with some phenomenal coworkers and have some great supervisors over the years. And, um, yeah, it, you know, when you're on a crew, that camaraderie that you talked about earlier is, um, is definitely a driving factor when you have that bond with your coworkers. And then, um, and then now even in fuels, I've been here 10 years now in this program and I've worked with some great people. I have, you know, all the support I need from my supervisors, um, to do, the work that I want to get done and, and then to try new things as well. Like if I want to try a detail or whatever. So, yeah. That is kind of nice about being in fire. You can do a lot of different, mm-hmm. different types of 
work and or jobs um, mm-hmm. get opportunities and then it's also it's a detail so it's like wow I might be really wanting to do this job in my future but it's like or mm-hmm. nah that's not <laughs> for me <laughs> yeah no I learned so how to drive a tractor doing oh, yeah. this job for the fuel brakes project um yeah, I had never driven a tractor before, and I my husband grew up on a farm, so he came to work with me one day and <laughs> taught me how to drive a John Deere, and I um, did the disc lines myself, and then later that spring, we put a cedar on the back of the, or fall, sorry, we put a cedar on the tractor, and I got to put some of the seed down on the ground, so that's been an interesting um, part of my job is learning to do that because I went from being a firefighter to sometimes I feel like a farmer <laughs> <laughs> seeding and, and disking out there. Yeah. So mm-hmm. have you had a lot of success with that, with um, seeding? It's been a very challenging project. There's some areas where we have had some success, but here in the Snake River Plain, you know, the reason they, the, they allowed us to plant a non-native is because of the the fire frequency and this area is really degraded it, it there's not much intact sagebrush left it's a lot of cheatgrass and medusa head and tumble mustards yeah. and just a lot of weeds and invasive species and and so that was you know part of our rationale for please let us try this because it Part of the reason the sagebrush doesn't come back here in this particular project area is because the low annual rainfall and the cheatgrass can just outcompete our native grasses and and forbs and stuff like that. And so, um, and the fire cycle as well is just yes. more. Yep, it, it's like yearly. three to five years in some places in this particular project. And so, um, yeah, the, the areas where we've had success is a little bit higher elevation, where sometimes if a storm does come through, it's going to kind of capture the clouds against the foothills and a little bit more rain falls through and then there's other areas where it's been more challenging just because it it doesn't get as much rain and um yeah i know we had a jolie play here um for our second episode and she was Mm -hmm. talking about how um just looking at the pockets of sage that we have and really trying to protect those and growing from that do you mm-hmm. see that happening or trying to do that as well in your district mm-hmm. I think in this particular project area that is the goal and we have the support of the field office manager to do that um, in in you know we're still working on getting the kosha established adjacent to roads in some areas of this this project but um, from there it, you know once we connect with the private land the field office manager wants to start looking at well, what can we do in the in-between spaces as far as, you know, managing it to reduce the fire risk and where can we look to start restoring some of those inner spaces and start planting sagebrush and more of the natives in there. So it's, it's on the horizon, but I, I still have my plate full right now just <laughs> getting these fuel breaks in place. Yeah, you need to take care of that fire situation first. Yeah. Yes, before. <laughs> yeah, we're getting there. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm stubborn. I'm not going to give up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. So explain a little bit about monitoring and what that means. Cause I think of monitoring is like, you're just watching something, but (laughs) it's a little more than that. Um, Do you go out to the, you go out to areas and look where you're going to have your fuels projects Mm -hmm. and then you set up plots or something and then kind of take readings. Yes. Um, And so monitoring isn't one of my primary duties, but I help out with our staff when I can on that. 
Um, but yes, before we do a treatment, we go and do what's called pre-treatment monitoring to see this is what we have out here before we do anything. And so we're looking at a plant inventory and a, and a fuel loading and, and we take pictures, um, you know, at like the center point of the monitoring plot to, you know, monitor before and after um, species inventory. I, I'm probably botching all of the actual <laughs> protocols that well, we do. species plants. Yeah. Yes. Um, and that's just and the types of plants that are in a particular area. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. Whether like what kinds of grasses, what types of forbs and shrubs and trees are out there. And anyway, from, from there, then we do the treatment and then they come back and we will do one year, I think three year and five year post monitoring and maybe even 10 year. Um, and so we're just looking at the effectiveness of our treatment, you know, on this one project, part of our monitoring is to make sure that we're not introducing more invasive species as part of our work out there because that's definitely a concern if we do then we need to be on top of it and treat those and take care of them as well but just to make sure that our treatments are effective and they also can inform our decisions of like well you know we thought this treatment was going to do this and this was the result one or three years later and it's not as effective as we thought so we're going to go in a different direction um, with this particular project and then another Another, it's not as much monitoring, but we do look at where um, wildfires intersect with our treatments. And we do what's called a fuels treatment effectiveness monitoring report that goes into a database there to show, you know, did this, you know, aid in firefighters, you know, stopping the fire or control of the fire? Did it modify the fire behavior? Um, Which is almost always yes, because... We modified the vegetation there, so the fire behavior is going to change. So um, so there's a couple different types of monitoring that we do. And I have seen <clears throat> those that fuels treatment effectiveness um, a lot across the BLM. I've mm-hmm. seen stories about how successful that is from where the fuel treatments have been implemented, mm-hmm. and then the fire comes in and just like, lays down. So mm-hmm. that's definitely um, out there for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, that kind of leads into the next question, and I... And I think you probably already answered this in many ways, but um, how can the work you do help firefighters? Yeah, we've talked a lot about fuel breaks <laughs> yes. here. And um, one, of our, um, one of our fire crews is based out of Hammett. And those guys probably went to two to, to three interstate fires every single week or every other day. It seemed like they were getting called. And it's, it's rare that they're getting one you know, one or two a month, it seems like. And, um, and so that definitely along the interstate has made a difference, those agreements that we've put in place with ITD to treat within the right-of-way. And we have seen a few instances where it has burned up where, against the kosher that's already existing out there, and it definitely has kept a, a fire that had potential to grow really large, keep it smaller. Yeah. So not... not uh Eliminating the fires you know, mm-hmm. through these treatments, but definitely kind of changing that fuel to keep them small or keep them small while mm-hmm. fire crews can get on it and mm-hmm. put them out while they're small. Yeah, <laughs> where they keep, go keep raging. Them small yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's it's no fun to fight fires along the interstate um, just with the traffic, and then you have to deal with the closing of the roads. And mm-hmm. so anything we can do to kind of keep the yeah. traffic moving and <laughs> yeah. keep fire out of there. Helpful, not just for firefighters, but for everyone. Yeah. So, yeah. So what, 
um, is your most memorable experience? Like in, like one, I don't know if you have one in fuels, but um, maybe for fire, when you were fighting fire. I met my husband in fire and that's pretty special. You know, we're going on 18 years this fall and he actually hit his 20 years recently. And this Friday is his last day working in fire in the federal government. And um, so that's exciting because, you know, I've spent the last 12 years at home doing fuels and watching our son grow up. And now hopefully it'll free me up to start participating in uh, fire suppression during the fire season a little bit more. But yeah, it would have to be meeting my husband is my favorite memory. (laughs) I feel like that's a great memory. (laughs) It is a great memory. So was it on a particular fire we were working on the same hotshot yeah. crew together in Colorado, yeah, which is happens. Yes, <laughs> when happen. you spend all summer <laughs> together, and if you're not going to kill that person <laughs> or want to mm-hmm. by the end of the season, like, yeah. then you marry them. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. Congratulations too on 20 years yeah. in the fire service. I mean, that's a huge accomplishment too, as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And he was a smoke jumper too. He was for the last. Yeah. So 16 or 17 years he I think he rookied in 2006 okay yeah well, that's great well thank you Courtney for joining us today for our eighth episode of wildfire matters taking the time out of your busy schedule to explain what you do in wildland fire management and fuels management and um, getting that perspective I'm uh, not just speaking for myself but I can say we really appreciate all you do and everyone you work with does to help protect our natural resources from firefighting and doing the fuel side of things. Yeah. Thanks Courtney for joining us today. We appreciate it. And for our eighth episode, that's really great. Um, So, but to learn more about NIFC or the BLM, please visit our website at www.nifc.gov. If you have any questions, comments, or topics, suggestions for future podcasts, please email them by visiting the nifc.gov website and scroll down to the contact us. Use Wildfire Matters podcast in the subject line. And remember to follow us at BLM Fire on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And thank you all for listening. Please join us next time when we spark a conversation with someone else in fire. Probably a BLM employee, hopefully, if we can find them, if they're not out on a fire. Um, And they'll let us know about their experiences, but it'll be a surprise. Yeah, it'll be a surprise. We'll let you guys know. Until Until then, then, stay stay safe and be wildfire aware. aware.